Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 36. In the last few episodes, I've taken my time and taken my share of personal wanders, so thanks for indulging me. In this most recent episode set, we began the process of looking at witnesses that were right there, close up to the assassination in Dealey Plaza. There really was only a handful of them, you know, and you'll meet most of them before this is all over in this mini-series of episodes. And today, you'll get to know the Willis family. Their story is an important part of the history of that day, a mix of all the things you think of when you think of how this country grew up and the great men and women in it. This is a piece of Americana, and sorrowfully, it relates to Americana that was called to service in the bubble of this tragic event. I'm not going to explain that. I I think most of you will connect with that in one way or another after you hear the Willises themselves. I hope so, anyway. So without further ado, let's listen to episode 36. Philip Willis is an interesting character in this play. He was a retired major in the Air Force and a man that had served and become disabled during World War II. He was now, at the time of the assassination, on disability. He'd been active in politics for a long time and actually was a state legislator in Texas during the late 1940s. A pretty interesting time to be in Texas politics. President Johnson has a few stories of his own from that time. I'm just saying. (laughs) And of course, we'll cover all of that in another episode. At the time of the assassination, Willis was an independent real estate broker, but he was still active in Texas politics and he was a personal friend of the then Vice President Lyndon Johnson. He knew personally all of the major figures from the Texas Democratic political machine that was in the motorcade that day, Conley and Yarborough and all the others. As his daughter would say in later years, he had come down to the plaza that day to take pictures of and see his friends. Willis had a driver drop he and his family right there at the parkway, a term he would use to describe Dealey Plaza. They wanted to have a chance to get a good view of the presidential party, and he took his two children out of school for the occasion. It was that important to him for his children to see and be part of the whole thing. He couldn't possibly anticipate the experience that they would have that day in the plaza. Upon being dropped off, Mr. Willis would approach a policeman, asking him how long before the motorcade would be there, and the policeman would tell him that the parade was approaching soon and would be right there in the area on Main. So Willis, still at the corner of Main and Houston, waited, and it wasn't long before he began to watch the motorcade approach. Willis was an amateur photographer, and he was proud of it, although in a self-deprecating fashion, he would later tell the Warren Commission that he was a poor one, a poor photographer, that is, but he did want to get some good color pictures of the president. 
So for starters, he photographed the president coming in front of the courthouse and making that turn off of Maine onto Houston Street. He would take a picture just as the limousine turned onto Houston Street. Then another one from the rear after they proceeded down Houston, approaching the turn that they were going to make at Elm. After he clicked the shutter of that next shot, he immediately ran across the plaza, racing over to Elm Street so that he could station himself on the curb. Waiting for the president's limousine to catch up and make the left turn on the Elm, and then it did, and that pose was captured in the photograph contained in the Life magazine issue that came out right after the assassination. Willis was on the edge of the street, and he photographed the presidential car not more than 10 feet away. As he would describe it, he was so close that his lens wouldn't fit it all in, the front or the rear of the car, into the picture. He just got the occupants and the center of the car. That's how close he was to all the action. He took that shot just seconds before the first shot was fired. Then he started down the street, walking in the same direction as the car was heading down Elm Street. Later, the pictures that were published in Life magazine would show Willis in three or so pictures. You know, those stills that were extracted from the Zapruder film, with Willis going down the street and situated in various positions on Elm as he was taking various shots with his camera. Instantly, after the fact, his background image in those photos became highly visible to all Americans who bought that issue of Life magazine. Willis would take a total of 12 slides that day, and he would form a corporation called Phil Willis Enterprises in order to market the images. He would later tell the Warren Commission that while he hadn't done anything with those images yet, he was of the belief that he was the only one with a complete set of prints covering the last 25 seconds of the president's life and the assassination tragedy itself. He also told the commission that he understood the gravity of this material from an historical perspective, and he was trying to make these pictures available to those who really needed them. The slides would, of course, be numbered in order, in order to organize and keep track of them, and it would be the famous slide number five that would be labeled as the one that was taken at the very instant the first shot was fired. These slides would become important in conjunction with trying to understand the exact point in the Zapruder film, that is, where and which frame depicted the first shot. You see, from Zapruder's vantage point up on the north side of Elm, his film captured Willis, and likewise, Willis, looking back from the south side of Elm, captured the same scene from the opposite side. The combination of these images analyzed together along with a testimony of Willis indicating very strongly that slide number five was the point at which the first shot hit the president, well, this became a central pillar on which to anchor from a timing perspective related to the shots and the specific Zapruder film frames that were involved. As you know from the previous episodes, that first shot and the timing of the first shot and where it laid in the sequence of Zapruder frames was critical to determining whether there was enough time available for the Manlicker Carcano rifle to get off the three or possibly four shots that were fired at the president. Willis was not looking at the action going on at the moment. Rather, as he would describe it, 
He had a process for moving down Elm Street as he tried to stay close to the motorcade and take pictures. His eye was firmly fixed through the viewfinder of the camera to try to get another, the next, good picture of President Kennedy before the president went out of range. Willis moved as far as he could within the few seconds that he had available to him. Quickly, he moved along Elm Street to try to track the car. Willis would reiterate that he's been in World War II, he was a deer hunter and a rifle hobbyist, and he immediately recognized that the sounds he heard were from a high-powered rifle. Wesley Liebler, the Warren Commission attorney that was questioning Willis that day, would ask him very clearly how many shots were fired altogether. Mr. Willis would clearly respond, three shots. Liebler would press him some more. You have any question about that at all? Willis would respond, no, sir. Willis would recall hearing the first shots as he was proceeding down Elm Street, and he too thought they were approximately two seconds apart, each one. He immediately became concerned for his two daughters who were running along not too far away from him and not too far away from the presidential limousine. They wanted to see the president too. He began screaming for them to come back, but they didn't hear him. He knew something tragic was happening to the president, happening right then. The shots just didn't ring out like a rifle shot that was fired into midair. You know, when a shot just hangs out there as it makes its way off into the distance. That was not what was happening here. He knew those shots hit something, and it was definitely gunshots. They just couldn't have been a firecracker or anything like that. He knew that. So he immediately gathered his daughters, and the three of them began heading back toward their mother, who was also in the plaza. Mrs. Willis was slightly back in the crowd, looking at the parade through the concrete structure that is in between Main and Elm Street. She was just a few feet back behind her daughters and not that far away herself from the president when he was first hit. When Willis heard the second and then the third shots, he began to scream, hoping to catch the attention of one of the policemen and alert him that the shots must be coming from that building. That is, the school book depository building. Because it had come from there, and Willis felt that, being directly across the street from the Texas school book depository building, that to him made it much more clear acoustically to those standing right there around where he was, clearer than for the people who were standing on the other side of the street. That is, those that were standing on the north side of Elm Street, where you would be, as a bystander, closest to the Texas School Book Depository. Liebler pressed him some more and said, So you thought you had picked out a particular building at the time when you heard the shots? Willis would answer back in an unequivocal fashion, Absolutely. Liebler would ask, What building was that? Of course, this is what you call a layup in basketball parlance. And Willis would answer the Texas School Book Depository. Liebler would press him again. You were pretty sure. And Willis would again answer saying, I felt certain. I even looked for smoke and I knew it came from high up. Then Liebler would ask, how do you know that? Willis would answer, well, I even observed the clock on top of the building and it was 12.33 when I looked up there. Willis would go on to answer and say there is a Hertz sign on top of the building, and it alternates the time of day and the temperature, and when he looked up, 
it was 1233 and the temperature was 68 degrees. And he would then add, that's shown in my slide number 12. Willis would answer candidly when asked if he had actually seen the headshot. He said, no, sir. I was just taking a picture of them and the presidential party in the car came through the viewfinder of my camera. But my little daughter ran back and said, oh, daddy, they have shot our president. His whole head blew up and it looked like a red halo. Of course, Willis was referring to his youngest daughter, Rosemary. His older daughter, Linda, was 14 and was old enough to better understand what was happening. In a bit, we'll hear from her in her own words as she spoke them later in life. Willis's pictures were used in various ways during the Warren Commission hearings. In fact, the entire series was critical in one sense in that they were used during the testimony of others to make identifying marks as to time and locations of various people, events, and activities. His photographic images were clear and were the clearest still-shot photographic evidence taken from the south side of Elm that day. Mr. Willis had very clear and convincing thoughts on when he snapped these pictures and what was happening right at those moments. A good example is a photograph he took which became known as Hudson Exhibit Number 1. The commission used it when they were speaking to Emmett Hudson, another grassy knoll witness, a witness they spoke to prior to speaking to Philip Willis. Willis would say that the particular photo in question shows that the president's car in fact, had passed the Stemmons freeway sign, and it shows that the president had turned in the opposite direction when compared to the previous picture that Willis had taken in the sequence. And to Willis, that essentially proved without question in his own mind that it was at this instant that the president had been hit. Liebler would specifically ask him as to whether or not he thought any of the shots came from the triple underpass or that area. Willis would explain that he saw a crowd there at the overpass and, in a wild guess prompted by Liebler's questioning, he would say that maybe about two dozen people were up there on the overpass. A pretty good guess if you think back to the statements we heard in a previous episode by Sam Holland who accounted for about 18 people up there. Willis would be very clear in his response about shots coming from this direction. He would answer, no, sir. But there was no doubt in his mind he saw people falling on the ground and the police officers racing over toward a concrete wall. And so Willis would clarify his answer and state that he was referring to an area across the street from Elm Street on the same side of the street as the school book depository. In other words, the grassy knoll. He would also recall that not only were civilians headed that way, but also policemen started going over there as well, because people were thinking that it came from that direction. Willis would finally offer that he knew it came from high above, that is, directly across the street from him, and that is the one thing that he was absolutely positive about. Now, let's pause there for the listeners. That's about as convincing a discussion by Phil Willis that there were three shots and three shots only were fired and that these three shots were not taken from the grassy knoll. He left a little crack in the door about the idea that the other shots certainly could have come from somewhere else, 
somewhere in addition to the school book depository. But he was very clear that he thought, based on what he heard that day, that the first three shots came from up there, from the depository. And on this point in particular, he certainly had plenty of time during his Warren Commission testimony to object or call attention to potentially some other shot being made or taken from another direction. But curiously, in fact, and under oath, it's pretty clear, or at least it appears to be pretty clear, that he was saying that the shots came from the depository only. Well, in later years, his story changed a bit. Ironically, he seemed to have become a believer that at least one other shot occurred from another direction. In later years, he would reaffirm that three shots definitely came from the top of the depository building, but all of a sudden, there was an addition to his story that seemed to be precluded from his sworn Warren Commission testimony. Later, he would swear that he felt like there was another shot that came from the front, and he would say very directly that all the Warren Commission was interested in was a discussion about the three shots. That may have been true. In fact, in general, I think it definitely was true. Not just with Philip Willis, but with the entire witness pool. But it still doesn't explain exactly why his testimony was so adamantly focused on the three shots and it doesn't explain why there is no evidence in his testimony that he was trying to tell a story that was anything but that. Certainly the attorney that was taking his testimony, Wesley Liebler, was pretty deftly capable of pivoting away from that controversial topic, should he need to do so. But Liebler didn't have to do that during his discussion with Willis, because it never seemed to go that way in the testimony itself. Willis was there with his family that day, and clearly all four of them talked afterward together about the assassination. Certainly, all three of the older Willis family members saw the news communications afterward. As you'll hear in a minute, Willis's wife and his daughter were not taking pictures, and so without the photographic distraction, they actually saw the gruesome act occur. But I think it was a consensus of opinion within the family that because the brain matter came pouring out of the rear of the president's head, that at least one shot must have come from the front. To them, I think it was just simple common sense. Philip Willis, his wife, and their 14-year-old daughter would later give an interview that would be included in the 1988 documentary that you heard about a few episodes ago, The Men Who Killed Kennedy. First, you'll hear a short clip from Mr. Willis, then another short clip from Mrs. Willis, and finally, a third clip from their daughter, Linda. Let's listen now to what they said in 1988. The implication was persuading, yes, ma'am, because uh, all they wanted to know was three shots that, that probably came from the depository building, which I never have doubted. That's about all they wanted. That about all got into the one. They said, hey, I heard three loud shots from a Texas depository. Hell, I'm telling you, 90% of the people in Dallas, Texas, and probably the United States have heard all this over have since decided that, as well as the second investigation uh, held in the House of Representatives in Washington. And, uh, and no one will ever convince me. I know damn well the shot that blew his head off came from the right front. 
the headshot seemed to come from the right front. It seemed to strike him here, and uh, his head went back, and it, all of the brain matter went out the back of the head. It was like a red halo, a red circle with bright matter in the middle of it. It just went like that. It was a, a terrible time. You cannot imagine seeing this. You, you knew it happened, but you didn't want to believe it. The particular headshot must have come from another direction besides behind him because the back of his head blew off, and it doesn't make sense to be hit from the rear and still have your face intact. So he must have been hit from another position, you know, possibly you know, in the front or over to the side. I, I really don't know where but the back of his head blew off. As I said, the documentary, The Men Who Killed Kennedy, first aired some 15 years after the assassination. And so, it's quite clear that Mr. Willis was able to display a different mindset. He would say that the commission didn't seem to take everything down. But that doesn't fit with the words that were printed that day. Either way, his statements in 1988 are truly filled with conviction and I tend to take him at his word. And I believe him. But as a juror, you have to ask yourself which version of the testimony do you believe? Or, like I have come to terms with, do you just simply believe what he said in 1988 and just reconcile the differences in the earlier Warren Commission testimony and the later interview statements that he made based on what he had to say about all that? It's a tough call if you are a jury member. In my mind, as a former major in the armed forces, he doesn't strike me as a man who would take advantage of the commercial nature of the assassination. Even though he had some of the most commercializable property related to the assassination event, his 12 slides. It's probably worth us doing a bit more research on that topic, just to be sure. You know, how well did Philip Willis Enterprises make out on selling those photographs? Those slides would certainly be worth more if there was a gunman on the knoll. But honestly, that is not something sitting in my gut that I am worrying about. That suspicion doesn't feel right when it comes to the Willis family. They strike me as an honorable group of people. For now, let's pivot back to the Warren Commission, with Willis indicating that his daughter Linda saw the Assassination Act. Liebler decided that, despite her young age, it was appropriate to go ahead and ask her a limited number of questions about what she saw. And here is how that went. Linda K. Willis would take the oath and confirm that she was probably no more than about 25 feet away when she witnessed the headshot. For our listeners, in later years, Linda would revise her estimate of how far away she was and go with a measure of about 100 feet. Regardless, she was 14 years old then. My God, just a baby still. After taking the confusing testimony from Emmett Hudson earlier in the witness reviews, the Warren Commission counsel Wesley Liebler would ask Linda whether she thought there was a shot or shots that occurred after the shot which hit President Kennedy in the head. She clearly stated, no. You'll understand that better when you hear the upcoming episode that includes a section on Emmett Hudson. 
Papa Willis had an Argus Actronic 35mm camera that day. The camera that he was taking slides with. If you want to see it, just head over to the 6th floor museum in Dallas. It's on display there. It looks a lot like the 35mm cameras I started out with back in the 70s. Their general shape and contour hasn't changed much over the years. Later that day, on November 22nd, Willis would take his film out to the Kodak Processing Center near Love Field. And like Abraham Zapruder, he would stay with it while the technicians were processing the film. Pay close attention to Linda's comments related to all of this inner story that you are going to hear shortly in her own words. Mrs. Willis, that is the wife of Phil Willis, was not called as a witness even though she was also with a good view of what happened on Elm Street. She would, however, later be called by Jim Garrison to testify at the Clay Shaw trial in 1969. That trial took place in New Orleans. She would tell the jury in her sworn testimony that she had an unobstructed view of the president at the time of the third shot and that she saw his head explode. And then his head in the now familiar litany so associated with and made so famous by the film JFK, she said, his head, it went back and to the left. And it exploded like a red halo. She would go on to say that she was one of those few that actually saw the Zapruder film on the day of the assassination. As I mentioned, both she and her husband were at the Kodak processing plant with the slide rolls at the same time Zapruder was there getting his film processed. She ended up being part of that small cadre that actually saw those images for the first time. She would go on to say that as the president's head exploded, it seemed that tissue or matter of some type from his head went backwards and left from where he was seated in the car. Undoubtedly, this visual that was also seen by their daughter, Linda, must have convinced all three of them that there must have been a shot from the front, the pure physics of brain matter ejecting so violently backwards. It just had to have come from the front. Again, it was not forensic science at work here. It was just common sense. Common sense that helped to form and solidify the view of these three witnesses. Later in life, Linda would occasionally grant a rare interview. Her younger sister would largely demure the prospect of talking about that day. Linda would find herself excited about one life event of an unusual nature, the idea of actually being in Oliver Stone's JFK movie. She read in the newspaper that they were coming to Dallas to shoot the film and needed folks to be in the movie. She answered the ad and made one call to the casting director. Before she could ask to be in the movie, when they found out who she was, they asked her first to be in the movie. And in reality, she couldn't wait to say yes. And once there, she got to play the part of her mother in the film. We're going to listen to one of those rare interviews now. But unfortunately, this interview was taken streetside right in Dealey Plaza, and so it's noisy there. As a result, I have significantly edited the original interview. First, to eliminate some of the automobile noise that is frankly a little annoying to listen to. And second, to eliminate many questions asked by the original interviewer that are simply not germane for our purpose here. Even though such questions are now cut out of the interview, Linda is incredibly articulate, and I think you'll understand just what the original question was when you hear her answer. 
I've tried to make it a little easier to understand by allowing for a brief silent pause between each question or a pivot to another topic. So again, here it is from one of the most articulate citizen witnesses you'll hear from. Listening to Linda Willis is no accident. As a juror, it's easy to get lost in this sea of evidence around where the shots really came from. I have been listening and learning and studying for 30 years on this topic. My head hurts. So sometimes, as a juror, you have to sit back and listen, and sometimes listening to the most credible of witnesses who were right there, who really and truly were right there and watched it happen. And the sound of their voices makes you believe more and not less. Well, sometimes that is just the kind of witness that you need to hear from before you call it a day. And then go eat a sandwich. So let's listen to Linda. On November 22nd, 1963, my family and I came to Dealey Plaza to see President Kennedy and his parade. We started at the corner of Houston and Elm Street, watched the motorcade come forward. As they turned to the right on Houston Street, my father and I followed the limousine. My father had a 35-millimeter slide camera. He did not have power wine, so he was snapping and winding just as fast as he could. We followed approximately the speed of the limousine, so we were pretty much running. So as the limousine turned from Houston Street back onto Elm and came by the Grassy Knoll area, we were still following the limousine. Then we got to a point and stopped probably within 100 feet of the limousine as the shots rang out. And then we saw the whole thing unfold before our eyes. I'm probably a little closer now than I was the day of the assassination, but I had a full view. The crowd was not very great at this point in the parade. Further up Main Street, there were a lot of people that were probably, you know, 10 deep from the curb back. But at this point in Dealey Plaza, the crowd was pretty thin, so we had a good view of the president's limousine. So I was very close and could see everything. Well, first of all, at age 14, the day that the assassination occurred, I was very aware of what was going on around me, and I had my full attention trained in on the president and his limousine. I really didn't watch anything else. It was a big deal for a girl my age then to see the president, so I didn't really watch anyone else. And so as the motorcade proceeded, I never took my eyes away from the president, and he was waving and, you know, in a great mood, glad to, you know, be in Texas, probably trying to repair some political problems going on. But I was, you know, really glad to see him, waving like everyone else, and uh, having my eyes totally trained in on him, I saw all the um, things that happened within the limousine, the reactions from the shots. And uh, when he was hit, you know, he grabbed for his throat. And the most important thing I remember, of course, is the headshot. When the headshot occurred, his brain matter just blew out the back of his head. It was a, a sunshiny day like it is right now. And when the sunlight hit the brain matter, it just illuminated. There was an orange aura around his head. And, you know, you'll never forget that kind of sight. My initial reaction and the thing I remember the most, it's like watching a film in slow motion, frame by frame. I feel like it's probably a protective mechanism in looking back, you know, that I didn't go into shock, but I just couldn't believe my eyes. I, I knew what I was seeing, but I was still in disbelief. It, it was very unreal. It was like watching a movie, but you realize you're there. Well, 
Well, I think, you know, in anticipation of the motorcade, people were glad to see him. The people who probably didn't like Kennedy at that time didn't bother to come see him. So the people who were here were glad to see him. The reason my family came, my father was in Texas politics in 1947 and 49. He served in the Texas legislature in the House of Representatives, and uh, Lyndon Johnson, John Conley, Sam Rayburn, um, so Ralph Yarber, these were all personal friends of my father's, and he had Democratic ties. He had been to fundraisers for President Kennedy and had met him. So my father was bringing my sister and myself and the, my mother to see his friends. And so that's why we were here. We were here to see my dad's friends. So it was a little more important to us than just the average bystander. And so it was really a great shock to my father to see this kind of thing going on with people that he knew. Well, I think, uh, you know, I was glad to see the motorcade, first of all. It was exciting to see a president. That was a big deal for a girl of 14. But when the shots occurred, my first re with the first shot, I really thought firecrackers, just, you know, in celebration. But as soon as the, you know, second and third and maybe subsequent shots, you know, I have no idea how many. I know there were at least three, maybe more. When that occurred, you know, I was just in... Um, well, shock is not the right word. I, I was in total disbelief and, you know, very uh, frightened, actually. You know, because the crowd around us, many people fell to the ground. You know, they were afraid they would be hit. But I was frozen. I didn't hit the ground, and I never took my eyes away from the president. There was such a small crowd that day. There were very few people who actually saw the assassination. There were people around the corner that didn't see it. They had already taken their eyes away from him because they were facing Houston Street. And so really just a handful of people actually saw what happened compared to the number of people that attended the whole parade. And, uh, you know, there are just a few people watching, and we were all in, you know, just, you know, shock, disarray. You know, people were falling to the ground. Um, there are many people who feel like shots came from the area where the railroad yards are, and people ran across the street that day to see what happened. I was one of the few people here that day, and the fact that I remember it so well, you know, there were children younger than I was that day who probably don't remember as well. You know, if you were like, you know, five or six or younger, the chances are you're running around not paying attention, but I paid attention, and so I remember it well, and people feel like, you know, it's unusual that I can recount everything specifically. Well, it's probably one of the most important things that's happened in history and, you know, in recorded history. And the thing has really not been solved. You know, we don't know all of the details of why Kennedy was killed and who did it. And we may never know. And uh, I think a lot of people are upset that the Warren Commission tried to sweep it under the rug. And in short order, you know, they did it very quickly and handed us a bit of information. And most people are not satisfied with that. When you were here, uh, before we were on camera, you talked about it. But uh, in your opinion, where did the shots come from? What did they uh, look like? Did you, did you see Oswald or the school book depository? Okay, I never looked at the school book depository because I was totally entranced with the president. But I feel like some of the shots came from the depository, but it may have been um, just, you know, part of a plan to maybe take attention away from the person who fired the fatal shots. I feel like the shots came from more than one area, possibly the railroad area or the triple underpass area. But definitely from in front. 
I think there was at least one fatal shot that was fired from in front of the president's limousine. Let's, let's say that again without that crummy diesel car. Pardon me. Uh, where do you think the fatal shot came from and why? I feel like the fatal shot came from in front of the president's limousine because I saw the president's head blow up and all of the brain matter went out of the back of his head. The sunlight hit the brain matter, there's orange aura around his head, and it all flew out the back of his head. So it doesn't make sense to be hit from the back and have the brain matter fly out the back. And your your dad was a hunter, so this was you, you, something you discussed with him? I mean, That's correct. My dad is a hunter. He was uh, in World War II. He has some knowledge of firearms, the sounds that they make, and especially with hunting, uh, what kind of an entrance wound you have and what happens when a bullet exits. And he has never felt like it all occurred from the school book depository. In terms of uh, conspiracy, uh, what, what would you be your conclusion then? Uh, what do you think? Do you think there was a conspiracy or not? Oh, I think there must have been. Uh, I think, first of all, security. So I think there must have been a conspiracy. I think there must have been a conspiracy. The uh, school book depository was probably a perfect place to hide someone, among other places, and the security was not tight that day. The crowd was sparse, and it was just too easy to walk up to the president's limousine, as it were, and uh, there are areas around here where a gunman could hide that day. And so I feel like, you know, there was help, especially um, because, you know, I saw the headshot. I feel like there was more than one gunman involved. No, I don't think we're ever going to know. Uh, probably the only thing that I have not mentioned that I think is really important is the fact that my dad's film was viewed by the Secret Service the day of the assassination. My family went to the Eastman Kodak plant near Love Field that afternoon, and my dad was in the lab with Secret Service and lab technicians watching his film being developed. And so in viewing the slides taken that day... Hang on one second, this is this is important. Okay, the day of the assassination, my father volunteered to have his film turned over to the Secret Service. My family went to the Eastman Kodak plant near Love Field, and my dad was in the lab with the Secret Service and the lab technicians while the film was being developed. Okay, my dad saw the film, and behind the grassy knoll area, there were trains that day. Okay, my dad had the trains in his film. He turned his film over to the Secret Service, and the pictures were in Washington for, for maybe two to three weeks' time. When he received his original film back, the trains were not in one or two frames of the film. So I feel like something important showed in that film that the Secret Service did not want known. So they either they didn't give you all the film back, there were frames missing, or... Did they physically alter the We frame feel frame? like, I feel like, the frame was physically altered. It was just whited out. Now, in an issue of Life magazine, another amateur photographer, in one of the issues of Life magazine, another amateur photographer had a shot taken approximately... In one issue of Life magazine, another amateur photographer had a picture published taken approximately within seconds of one of my dad's slides.
hit the other photographer's picture shows the train. My dad's picture taken at, I think, closer range does not show the train because it's been altered. Okay, I feel like at least one frame of my dad's film has been altered while it was in Washington being viewed by the Secret Service or the FBI or both. That interview was completed around 1991 or 1992. It was not long after the JFK movie was filmed in Dallas and Linda Willis was about 42 years old then. Linda had some important things to say about her participation in the movie, and so let's hear that, too. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, I was reading about the making of the JFK film in the Dallas Morning News, and I thought, boy, wouldn't it be interesting to be in the film because I was really an eyewitness. And so as I read two or three articles about it, my interest became greater. I saw a telephone number in the paper one day, and I called that number and got the casting director on the telephone, and as soon as I identified myself as Linda Willis, he asked me to come be in the film before I had a chance to ask if I could be in the film, and so I was thrilled. I just said, you know, tell me what time, what day, and where, and I'll be there. And what part did you play? Okay, I played my mother's part. I was Mrs. Willis in the film, and I'm the same age now that my mother was the day that Kennedy was killed, so that worked out nicely. Well, I get a lot of mail. I get a lot of inquiries as to how it felt that day, just like you're asking me now. People are still very interested. I've done several interviews, just as the interview I'm doing with you now. And it has just by accident become an important part of my life. I just happen to be in the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the right time, whichever way you want to look at it. And so it has affected my life. First of all, Oliver Stone's movie makes people stop and think that maybe the Warren Commission did not tell us all of the truth or any of the truth and that we ought to question more and not take things at face value. I think it's an insult to the American intelligence to try to um, sweep the thing under the rug. I, that's what I think they've done. You know, they set out to give us a certain piece of information and accept it at you know, face value, and I don't think that was the right you know, way to do things. Well, I think it's fitting to let Linda's dad, the patriarch of the family, have the last word here. So let's listen to Philip Willis one more time before we call it a night. So I am very dead certain at least one shot, including the one that took the president's skull off, had to come from the right front. And I'll stand by that to my death. Over my mother's grave. Thank you for listening to episode 36 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. In episode 31, you heard Mary Woodward make a series of comments about the taping of her interview by what she characterized as the BBC. If you recall, she was none too happy with the results of that interview, going as far as to say that she had previously held the BBC out as the gold standard, but that she was very disappointed with them as a result of the interview that appeared as part of the series entitled The Men Who Killed Kennedy. In that same interview, she also mentioned that Nigel Turner, the producer of that same show, would go on to become the president of the BBC. 
In fact, he did not. And in fact, the show was not produced by the BBC at all. I did not fact check this series of statements before episode 31 aired, as we simply used Mary's interview. We also assume that, as a former reporter, that Mary would be the last person not to know exactly who was interviewing her. Seems like a reasonable assumption, doesn't it? But apparently, she did not. We did rather innocently read and repeat that the interview was conducted by the BBC. So, our apologies for that. How she came to think this production was from the BBC is an interesting question in and of itself. Did she misunderstand, or was she misled by the producers, perhaps? None of us really know. It turns out one of our very avid fans from the UK caught this series of errors in our podcast and graciously pointed it out to me. As a result, I would like to make the formal correction here, using the well-outlined set of comments that Chris provided me via email. I'll simply repeat his words here. As I'm sure you know, the BBC is our public service broadcaster, renowned for its independence and impartiality. The Men Who Killed Kennedy was made by Central Television, one of our independent commercial broadcasters. It was never broadcast by the BBC, but by the commercial broadcasting network, ITV. This may seem like a small and insignificant point, except when the contrary is frequently repeated by researchers and especially by Mrs. Woodward. Additionally, Nigel Turner, the series creator, never became the president of the BBC, as Mary stated. First, he never worked for the BBC. More importantly, the BBC does not have a president. The two top jobs in the corporation are chairman and director general. Once again, I would like to thank Chris for pointing these facts out. I strive to be really accurate, but in the end, this podcast is put together by just little old me. There isn't anyone else. That, in and of itself, makes for limitations on things like fact-checking and original research, and it virtually assures that occasionally we're going to get something wrong. When you add my own self-imposed publication deadlines, deadlines designed to ensure that you as a listener get a steady diet of content, well, it's not exactly living on the edge, but it does work against the idea of an uber-careful editorial process. Regardless, my pledge to you is that we will work hard in the first place to keep it completely accurate, and where we do make a mistake and we find it, we will self-correct and tell you. Thank you again for all your support, and I look forward to many more episodes of JFK, The Enduring Secret.